All right. Um, so we, we're continuing in, in our sermon series as we're slowly making our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And so last week we looked at how we were to celebrate the gospel. We looked at Paul's testimony and just the power of the gospel, how amazing it is. And so tonight we're going to look at how we are to wage spiritual warfare. And so this is going to be a continuation of Paul's charge to Timothy. And we're going to see how that is a charge for us today. And we're going to see how just uh, truths that we need to do to be able to um, wage spiritual warfare and what that means. Uh, but first, if you have your Bibles, again, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Um, so if you have your Bibles, that's where we'll be. And then as, uh, as you're turning there, uh, I want you to think of this scenario. Okay, so imagine there's a realtor, realtor is someone that sells homes to people, and, and that realtor is selling homes to people that have absolutely no foundation to the home whatsoever. Like, the home has no foundation whatsoever, and every time, and people are buying this, and going into these homes, moving into these homes, building lives in these homes, but then as soon as storms come, any sort of storm comes, then this house actually crumbles and leads to the death and demise of that person or their family that bought that home. What do you think should be done about that realtor? Okay, get arrested. Okay, for fraud. Fired. What, what, what if nobody does anything about the realtor and they're just still out there being able to do this? Then what? Someone's going to try to kill So, like, what if no one does anything? What if no one confronts them? What if, what, what, will, what will happen? Yeah, like they're gonna keep they're gonna keep selling these homes, and it's gonna keep bleeding. So people getting hurt. It's gonna lead to people unless someone stops them, unless someone confronts them. Because if it's literally leading to people's deaths, then then something needs to be done about it. And and I think this would happen. This is what happens a lot of times with false teachings and with false teachers that say they're teaching what the Bible says or teaching what the true gospel is when it's not. They're saying, look at this nice home. Don't you want to live in this nice home? And people will come and, and they'll, on the outside it might look real nice. But as soon as the storms of life come, then that house will come crashing down. Why? Because there's no firm foundation behind it. There's no structure behind it. But yet there's people out there that are selling this false bill of goods to other people and people are buying it and it's leading people astray. And they're building their lives on this false foundation. And when the storms of life come, it will lead to a mighty fall, especially when they enter into eternity and stand before God because they don't have that firm foundation of the gospel. And so we as Christians, we need to confront this. We need to combat false teachings. If it's leading people astray and if it's leading people to especially an eternal demise, then we should do something about it. But here's the thing. All of us in here, we are, we are fallen sinful human beings and I don't know about y'all, a lot of us are afraid of confrontation. We, we don't like confronting people. Uh, we don't like what could result from that. Or a lot of times maybe we don't, we're terrified of maybe standing up for the gospel because we don't want to have someone counter that. We don't, maybe we're worried about someone asking us questions we don't have the answers to. Um, or just living in a society where it seems like more and more things are being accepted that is totally against the gospel. And it might just seem so overwhelming. They're like, what, what do we do and how do we combat this? But here's the main point that we need to understand for tonight. The main point for tonight's sermon that we must understand is that the gospel commands us, but also empowers us to confront false teachers and false teachings. So the gospel 
commands us, but also empowers us to confront false teachings and false teachers. And we're going to see that as we look through this. So again, we're in 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 20. So let's, let's look at these three verses real quick. So this is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. So, Lord, um, we just come before you, and, and we are just in desperate need of your grace. And you are a God, as we learned last week, that your grace is overflowing. And so we pray, would you just overflow your grace on us tonight and bless the rest of this worship? Would you help us understand uh, the scriptures we're about to study together? And would you help us see just more of our need for Christ? Holy Spirit, would you convict us in ways that, that we are not truly living in accordance with the gospel, but also remind us of the grace and mercy that comes from that too, that Christ extends to us every day. And would you give us not only the boldness, but the humility to stand firm on the gospel and to go into a world full of darkness and push back the darkness, that we do it with love, which is our ultimate charge and our ultimate aim. So, Holy Spirit, would you just uh, purify me and everyone else in this room of our pride, humble us, submit us to your authoritative word, and help us just receive this word with joy and gladness and help it bear fruit that helps us grow more in our relationship with Christ, more in our relationship with one another, and ultimately to make Christ's name known, as you've called each and every one of us to be. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if we are to confront false teachings and false teachers, there is two main ways that we are to do that that we get out of this passage. First one is this. We need to stand strong in the faith. We, we need to stand strong in the faith. So again, to kind of give a little backstory, understand where, where we're coming from and how we got to this point, is at the beginning in verses 1 through 11 of this first chapter, Paul is giving this charge to Timothy. He's saying we need to guard the gospel. There's false teachers out there. They're talking about just endless genealogies and myths that have nothing to do with the Old Testament. They're adding to the gospel. So I'm giving you this command to give to them to stop teaching these false teachings. And then Paul makes a little bit of a detour in verses 12 through 17. And he said, look, we need to celebrate the power of the gospel. And we looked at Paul's testimony and the amazing power of the gospel in his own life. And so now he is coming back at the end of this chapter, back to his original charge in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. And so what was this charge in chapter 1, or in verses 3 and 4? Well, it says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So this charge is you need to confront these false teachings because it's leading to division, it's leading to confusion, and that is not the true gospel. And so we see this first truth. One way we stand firm, stand strong in the faith, is that we must combat false teachings and false teachers. We must combat false teachings and false teachers. Teachings that are not found in Scripture or teachings that people take a half-truth from Scripture and try to say this is the whole gospel. Or things that people say, well, God is okay with this. And really, that, that is not what God is okay with. And so I'm just, I want to, I'm curious from y'all, and I'd love to get y'all's feedback. What are some false teachings that y'all hear today in your schools, on your teams, your neighborhoods? What are some false teachings you hear? So I don't know if it's really true, but like, 
or someone. And um, he thinks that like he thinks that there's like a holy book. Okay. And he says that like God was one of many like I don't know what they call it like some one of his many gods. Mm-hmm. He thinks Jesus was okay. one of like. Yeah. It, was, it sounded like disciple or something, but it okay. wasn't a disciple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But. Eli. That, uh, one thing is that everybody thinks that all you have to do is just believe in your mind that God is real and you're going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Good. Anybody else? Mormonism. Mormonism. Okay. One thing that people do is like that I've heard this year is even if, like, if you hear them cussing or something or just acting, saying really, like, bad stuff, and you say something about a Christian, they'll just be like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, I think others that are around today, uh, I would say, is, is what's called subjective truth or relativism is kind of the fancy word for it, meaning just <laughs> whatever you believe is true, then it's true. Like, if you, just, if you think it's true in your heart, then that's true. I could believe something's true and you could believe something's true. It could be literally polar opposites. But that's your truth and that's my truth and you're supposed to speak your truth. That is one that's around today. Another one that people say is follow your heart or essentially just whatever you feel internally, then, then that is who you are. Whatever you feel internally, then you need to – whatever you feel internally, you need to make all of your external circumstances, everything around you match what you feel internally. And that's what matters most. But here's the thing. If we allow this truth – to mean whatever the truth means. So if we just say, well, you believe your truth, I believe my truth, it is what it is, that's going to distort the gospel. It's going to distort the truth of the gospel because we see in scripture that there's only the truth and it's the truth that comes from scripture. Or if we allow people to just follow their hearts, then it will lead to them either outright rejecting God or it will lead to just them fashioning a God to their liking and their image so they can continue to live however they want and their God they fashion said is totally okay. It's oppressive. What if you want, like that kid? If you try to explain your side, and mm-hmm. just try to make it as simple as possible, and they just still don't, they just still believe what they want. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I would encourage is that, is that, one, besides praying for them, that we remind ourselves that there might be a lot of unlearning to do before they come to that point of accepting Christ. And we're going to come more of this, uh, just like we saw last week, is that God is perfectly patient with us. So be patient with them as we try to share it with them, and God works on their hearts. And so that is when we do that because, again, our, our aim when we combat false teachings and when we want people to believe in Christ, our whole aim is love. It's not us believing we're better than them. It's not us being arrogant or prideful, but it's us, hey, I love you because I love God. I love this gospel, and I love people that Christ came to die for. And so that is what we see so that we are to combat false teachings and stand strong in the faith and that we're do this with a loving posture on this. And then Paul continues this. Paul says, okay, you're, this charge I entrust you, this is the charge. And then it says to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So what he means by the prophecies made about you is this echoes what we see in 1 Timothy 4.14, where there were elders in the church and they believed that Timothy was being called to ministry. They believed he was gifted or at least called to pastoral ministry and he was gifted in this. And so the elders laid hands on them and prayed for him. So they were saying they were setting him aside for this. And so Paul wanted Timothy to remember, hey, you were called to this. 
that you were called to this church, you were called to this place, you were called to this charge, and I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that moment when those elders laid hands on you and prayed for you. I want you to remember those times that people affirmed what you were called to. So uh, an example in my own personal life is my ordination service. So an ordination service, what it means, it means when a church recognizes someone that is called specifically to pastoral ministry. And what they want to do is they want to take that service to be able to people to pray over them and for them to affirm their calling into ministry and to present them now as them being officially ordained, being a reverend, a pastor. And so what happened in my life is just when I first felt called to pastoral ministry, I I sought counsel from people in my church. I sought it from my pastors, uh, from mature believers and things of that nature. And then over time, just kind of through serving and internships and and just kind of the pastors at the church and working with them is that they affirmed my calling, them and the deacons and mature believers. And then what they wanted to do is, is they wanted to affirm that publicly by having an ordination service for me before they sent me from middle Virginia to here in middle Tennessee. And so what they would do is, is they had a chair at the, at the altar at the front of the church and, um, and they had several group of guys come up at a time and they would lay hands on me and pray over me as they prayed for me as I entered into pastoral ministry. And so and then what they did at the end is they gave me the certificate of ordination that I hold in my office now. And I'll never forget my senior pastor at that time. He gave me this advice where he says, hey, look, when ministry gets tough, when life gets tough, is that you remember your calling. You remember your calling. Remember that you were called to this. Remember that this is what God called you to. So even when things are going rough, even when things just seem to be going terribly, remember that God called you to this and remember that. And here's what I want us to know is that all of us are called into ministry. It might not necessarily be pastoral ministry or full-time vocational ministry, but all of us are called into ministry. All of us have a ministry that we're a part of. Ultimately, we're all called of, to repent of our sins and believe in Christ. We're called to that, but then all of us are called to this ministry of reconciliation. And we saw that a few weeks ago. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, that it says, hey, God not only saved us, but also gave us this ministry of reconciliation. So all of us are called to the ministry of reconciliation, of defending the gospel, of proclaiming the gospel, telling other people about the gospel. And as we're going to see, to defend the gospel against false teachings. So here's what I want you to do. Here's another way we stand firm in the faith. You must remember your calling. Remember your calling. And so here's what I'm saying. I want you to think about when you were first saved. That moment when just the light bulb clicked and you repented of your sins. You believed in Christ. You received salvation. And you were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. I want you to remember that. I want you to think about just how that felt. Maybe for some of you when you first got saved, maybe you received a Bible that had your name on it. Um, that has your name in when you first got saved. Maybe it was, let's say, at a camp or an event. Maybe you still have that shirt from that event. And I want you to, in many ways, to treat that as your remembrance. So when life gets tough, when you feel like other people around you don't want anything to do with the gospel, when you feel like it's hard living for Jesus in your schools, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, your sports teams, or wherever else you're involved in, I want you to remember that this is what God has called you to. So I want you to remember when you first got saved and how God has helped you and grown you in that process. I want you to think about, let's say, that Bible. I want you to think about that shirt, whatever the thing is that you hold on to, that memento, to remind you that God has called you to this. And that will help us as we continue forward to remember that God has called us to us and remember the gospel and what Christ has done for us. 
So then Paul says in the last little, bur- uh, last little part of verse 18 that between this charge to combat false teachings and between remembering his calling, that from both of these, he is to wage good warfare. Some translations might say, hey, you need to fight the good fight for the faith. And so this is military language that Paul is using. Paul is using military language to explain how we are to combat false teachings and stand strong in the faith. In fact, here's the definition of warfare. It's a military campaign designed to achieve a specific objective in a foreign country. And so what we need to understand is if we are Christians, we are living in a foreign country. That we are living, that we are citizens of heaven. And that we live in a world that is ruled by Satan. Ultimately, God is ultimate in control. Please hear me on that. God is ultimate in control. And let's allow Satan to do this. But we live behind enemy lines, if you will. That we live in enemy territory. That we are foreigners in this place on our way towards heaven. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so we must be on guard. We live in a fallen, sinful world. It's infected and impacted by sin. And that teaches, this world teaches beliefs that are totally against God. It's totally against the gospel and seeks to promote ourselves above anything else. And so if we're to wage good warfare, if we're to remind ourselves that we have a specific objective by God to go into, let's say, a foreign country to achieve that objective, then we must know this next truth is we must remember our environment. We must remember our environment. We've got to remember our environment and where we are. Because here's the thing. We are in a spiritual war. That's why Paul gives this military-like language. Because we are in a spiritual war. You might not see it. You might not see it, obviously, like let's say with your physical eyes right now. But if let's say we could peel back the curtain and we could see the spiritual realm around us. There are battles happening all around us right now. There's a battle for your attention, even just listening to the word preached right now. There's a battle for your attention where it's easy for us to get distracted by what homework do I need to do after this? Or man, I remember doing this at school and that was so dumb of me. Or remember thinking about things that are going on next week. There's a battle for our attention to listen to the preaching of God's word. There's a battle over distractions. When we try to read our Bibles and we try to pray and all of a sudden our phone starts buzzing or go, well, I just want to check this one tweet or I just want to check this one text and respond to this one thing. And next, you know, we're down a whole rabbit trail. I said, how do we get there? There's a battle for our attention and distractions. There's a battle for our schedules, for our time, for our money, for our energy of what are we valuing the most in our lives. And that's reflected in all those areas. There's a battle for our minds and what we allow to see. What are we, what are we seeing, let's say, through Netflix or Hulu or anything else? What are we watching? What are we listening to? There's a battle for our ears. What are we listening to? What music are we listening to? Who, which people are we having in our ears and listening to them? In Ephesians 6, 12 through 13, Paul gives this. Paul says, hey, look, our battle is not physical, but it is spiritual. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against one another. But no, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the principalities, the cosmic powers, the, the dark forces of the heavenly places. So this is not against the battle of, let's say, preferences in the church. I, don't want, I want you to hear me out on this. That when it comes to us combating false teachings and defending the gospel, this is not us, let's say, battling against preferences. Do we sing hymns or do we sing contemporary music? This is not a battle against what do we wear in church? Is it okay to wear a tie or not wear a tie? This is not a battle of any of that. No, no, no. This is a battle of the core tenets of our faith, of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, the person and work of Christ, being born of a virgin, that living a perfect, sinless life, 
crucifying on the cross, paying the penalty for all of our sins for all of time, being buried in the tomb, being bodily resurrected out of the grave, and then ascending back up into heaven, and that there's only salvation through him and believing in that and nothing else. We don't add anything to that. That is about life and death. It's about eternity is at stake in this. And that's what we are to battle for. That is why we are to wage this good warfare. Because eternity is at stake in this. This is why we combat false teachings. Because it's going to lead people astray. And if they continue to lead astray and, be, and fall away, it's going to lead ultimately to them being eternally separated from God. This is why we have this just this burden on our hearts to share the gospel and protect the gospel and guard the gospel at all costs. Because if we lose the gospel, we lose everything. So we are to wage good warfare. And then what Paul does in the first half of verse 19, he actually gives us two weapons that we are to have in our warfare. So if we're to wage good warfare, then we need weapons to wage against this warfare, against these evil forces. And so he gives us two things. The first one, it says, it says holding faith, holding faith. So first thing we must to do, we must have authentic faith. We must have authentic faith. So here's faith. Faith is trust in the gospel. It's trust in Jesus as contained in the gospels. Because think about this. If we are to stand firm in the faith, it's hard to stand firm in the faith and defend the faith if we don't have faith to begin with. We cannot stand strong in the faith if we don't have authentic faith. We can't, we can't defend the gospel if we don't believe in the gospel. So the first thing we need to do is we need to have authentic faith and believe in the gospel. This word faith is the same faith talked about in 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul originally gave his charge, that the aim of our charge is love. And this comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That is what to do. So let me ask you this. Have you truly repented of your sins and believed in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and received salvation from him? So if we're to stand firm in the faith, that's the first place to start is you must have faith. And you start by repenting of your sins, believing in Jesus, and receiving salvation from him. Do you just have head knowledge of Jesus? You know all the facts about Jesus. You know all the facts about it. You could tell the story like it's no problem, the gospel story, no problem. But have you applied that to your heart and believed in it? Is that we could have just our heads full of knowledge and full of facts about Jesus in the Bible. But if it hasn't been applied to our hearts, then we still don't have faith. We need to apply it to our hearts. We need to place our full faith and trust in Christ. An example is the chairs you're sitting in. You could say all day long, it's like, well, the chair is made by this factory. and Here's all the dynamics of it. And here's everything else about it. But if you never sit in the chair and place your full weight in the chair, you haven't trusted in the chair. You're saying all the other things about the chair, except placing your full weight and trust in it. And so you can know all the facts about Jesus, but until you place the full weight and trust in Jesus, you still haven't had faith. Here's the thing. I I implore you that if you haven't, or if you know people of, to implore them to come to faith in Christ. Here's the thing. The same Jesus we saw last week about Paul's testimony, about how he's perfectly patient with us and he extends mercy to us and he overflows grace, is the same God today that is perfectly patient with us and extends grace and overflows mercy to us. So Paul gives us our first weapon. We're to have an authentic faith. We need to hold on to faith. Then he gives us our second weapon. So in verse, the beginning of verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, a good conscience. So our second weapon is we must have an authentic lifestyle. We must have an authentic lifestyle. Seriously, not only do we need to believe in the gospel, but we need to live out the gospel. We can't just say, I believe in Jesus, but then never live it out the rest of our lives. 
We cannot just talk the talk. We have to walk the walk. We have to back up what we say. In James 1.22, he lays it out clearly. He says, let us not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Let us not just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And we come to church on Sundays, but then the rest of the week, it, it, it looks like there's little to no difference in our lives. That if we have believed in Jesus, it should make an impact on our lives. So we can't just gather here on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings or Sunday nights and gather just information from the Bible. We must take that knowledge and then by the grace of God, apply that knowledge to our lives. It's great that we're taking notes and writing these down in this journal, but how are we going to take that and apply it to our hearts and apply it to our lives and live it out? That we can't just say, I believe in Jesus, but are we living out our faith in Jesus? Because here's the thing, if we say we believe the gospel, if we say we have placed our faith in Christ, but there's no evidence of that in our lives, of us being transformed by the gospel, then that is another, that is another reason of us showing that we have rejected the gospel and we still, need, we still need faith. If people say that we believe in the gospel, but, but we see no evidence of that in their lives, then, then, then that's ultimately them rejecting the gospel. Now, please hear me out on this. Please hear me out on this. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you are absolutely perfect in your faith. Newsflash, none of us are perfect. None of, none of us are perfect and we'll never be perfect until we reach heaven. But we're constantly growing in our faith. What I mean by us living out our faith in Christ is that we're constantly slowly growing. Paul says, we're going to look at this later on in 1 Timothy 4, but in 1 Timothy 4.15, Paul says, hey, practice these things. Take these things that you've heard and seen and been taught and practice them so that people may see your progress, not your perfection, your progress. Us having an authentic lifestyle is us knowing, yeah, I am a sinner and I am saved by grace and I have a lot of faults and failures and I'm still working on it day by day. But as we saw last week, God is perfectly patient with us. And he helps us every step of the way to slowly put off more sinful habits and put on godly habits. To slowly repent of more sins and believe in Christ more and to live for him that much more. So let me ask you this. If we're to have an authentic lifestyle, have you not only believed the gospel, but are you living out the gospel? Or do you know people that are Christian? Do people know you are a Christian by the way you live your life? And here's the thing. Not just Christians on Sundays and Wednesdays. I'm not talking about just those people knowing you're a Christian by the way you live your life. I'm talking about your classmates, your teammates, your neighbors, your coworkers. That, that, that if we were to ask them, would they say, yeah, I, I know that person's a believer by the way they live their lives and carry themselves out? Or do you shy away from living out your faith around certain people because you're worried or scared about offending them or having questions asked back at you that you might not know the answers to or that you're worried about facing ridicule. Here's the thing. We must boldly and humbly stand on the truth of gospel and live it out unashamedly. We must be bold knowing that we need, we are commanded by the gospel to stand firm on the gospel. We also do it humbly knowing that we're not perfect and we're constantly growing and we want other people to believe in this amazing gospel. That we need to stand firm on that. Because again, as we saw last week, again, again, with Paul's testimony, Christ is perfectly patient with us. Jesus is perfectly patient with us. He will help us every step of the way to cling to the gospel. He will help us every step of the way to grow more in our faith and stand firm in our faith and help us grow more in that confidence because it, be, it can be intimidating at times. 
if we have family members or friends or people we know that we love dearly and we want them to believe the gospel and we know they're believing false things, we want to do that, but it's hard for us to do that, Christ is perfectly patient with us and helps us with that. Because again, we look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus for this because he's not only our firm foundation, but we are to stay strong in the faith and he will be the one who sustains us and empowers us to stand strong in the faith and combat these false teachings. So we need to stand strong in the faith. But here's the second truth we need to do. If we are to combat these false teachings, we not only need to stand strong in the faith, but we also need to let people go. We need to let people go. So the second half of verse 19, Paul then goes on to say why we must stand strong in the faith, why we must wage good warfare. And he actually gives two examples. He names two examples who are not standing strong in the faith. In fact, he says, look, it says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So he's saying these men have rejected this. They have rejected the gospel. They have rejected the faith. They have rejected a good conscience. They're no longer believing or living out the gospel. And because they rejected the gospel, and because they did not stand strong in their faith, they have ended up shipwrecking their faith. Shipwrecking means they've they've led it to disaster. Because here's the thing, the further we move away from the gospel, the further we not only fall away from God, but the more we enter into destruction. Because here's the thing, we see in scripture that all things are held together by God. So if all things are held together by God, then the more we move away from God, then the more things will fall apart in our lives. So the first thing we must do is that we look at this example of these two people, how they rejected it, and it led to them shipwrecking their faith by rejecting the gospel. Here's the first truth. We must hold firm to the true gospel. We must hold firm to the true gospel. We must cling to the gospel. Like we saw last week, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. We need to remind ourselves every day that we need the gospel in our lives. But here's what then Paul does. Paul then gives two examples of people who have rejected the gospel. He names names and calls them out in this and the result of that. So he says, look, they people have, have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So there's only a couple of the times we see these guys' names mentioned in Scripture. So Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2.17, where he is actually spreading false teachings that the final resurrection, the resurrection of the dead at the end of time has already happened, and how that has led to people swerving from the faith and leading those people astray. And it said it's spreading like gangrene, that it's spreading wildly and impacting people. Second one is Alexander is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 14 through 15, where it says he was opposing the gospel message. He was opposing the apostolic teachings of Paul. And so by rejecting the gospel, ultimately made shipwreck of their faith. And again, shipwreck means this. It makes to, to make disaster of, to make into a state of extreme ruin or misfortune. Here is a great example we can look at even in scripture. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus gives this parable about these two men. There are these two men. One built their house on rock and one built their house on sand. So one made the foundation of their home a rock. One, the other one made a foundation of their home on sand. And then he says, look, floods came and storms came and everything else. And it said the first man who built his house on the rock, the floods came, the winds came, and it beat down on the house. But his house did not fall. But then it said the second man, the floods came, the storms came, the wind came. And it hit this man's house, and his house collapsed. It fell, and the fall was great. 
And so when he talks about whoever takes these words and does this with them, he's saying whoever takes the gospel and applies it to their lives, you are building your house on rock. So yes, the storms of life will come. We will face hardships in this life. But it says, look, our house may take a beating. And there might be times where we face really difficult seasons. But at the end of the day, we have this strong foundation of Christ that holds us fast, that clings us, that holds firmly to us. He holds us strong, even when we face difficulties. But people, when they believe false teachings and they're building their house on this, the sand, then they're going to have a great collapse when the storms of life come. I think a great example that has shown this is COVID the past couple of years. COVID has rocked so many people to their core. COVID has exposed so many people to what they were truly placing their faith in, what they were trusting in. It was revealing. But here's the thing. The gospel is like an anchor for our souls. So it says it shipwrecked their faith. An anchor just holds a ship so fast. So no matter how much the winds might be blowing, carried to and from, that anchor holds that ship firmly in place. But when people don't have an anchor in their lives, they're going to be blown away by whatever the latest teaching is, whatever the latest trend is. They're going to be blown away, and ultimately that's going to lead to them being shipwrecked. So let me ask you this. Are there certain things in your life that you are placing your full weight and trust in more than Jesus? Are you placing your full weight and trust in your academics or your grades? Are you placing your full weight in your athletics, your athletics, athleticism? Are you placing your full weight in your looks or relationship that you might have? Again, our lives must be founded on Christ and Christ alone. And these other things, none of these other things I'm saying are evil. Here, please hear me out on that. None of these other things are evil in this place, but they must be used to glorify Christ. They're used to glorify Christ and that even if we lose them, as we just sang, okay, that's fine. Jesus is still better than even that of whatever I lost. So Paul names Hymenaeus and Alexander as two examples of people who have rejected the gospel, not living out the gospel, and they have made a shipwreck of their faith. So Paul names names. He says, look, like there's, there's people that are among you that have shipwrecked their faith and are believing these things and teaching these false things. So the next truth we need to know about letting people go is we must mark and avoid false teachings or teachers. We must avoid, we must mark and avoid false teachings or false teachers. Paul even gives us his command at the end of his, uh, at the end of the book of Romans 16, 17 through 18. Paul says, we need to mark and avoid these people because it's leading people astray. We must point out these false teachings that are leading people away from the gospel. We must warn people about this. We must point out false teachers that they're saying, speaking truths of the Christian faith, when in reality, they're not speaking anything about the Christian faith. It might be things against the Christian faith. It's against things that are in Scripture. And we see in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we need to test everything according to Scripture. Test everything I say according to Scripture, or Pastor Kenneth, or any other passage you hear. Test everything, that, uh, test everything you read or see or hear according to Scripture. And here's the other crazy thing. Here's another, if you will, a plot twist to this. When Paul names Hymenaeus and Alexander, these are elders at the church that Timothy is leading at this time and that Paul has entrusted him. So these are elders at the church that Timothy has been placed at, that is teaching false teachings, that are false teachers, and that have shipwrecked their faith. Here's what that should say to us. This should humble us. What this is saying is that no one is immune to the temptations of false teachings. No one is immune to these false teachings and believing in them. So this is why we must cling to Christ dearly with everything we have. We must preach the gospel to ourselves 
daily. We must study the scriptures diligently. So that way we can point out false teachings when we see them. And we can hold fast to what is true. That is what we need to do. But then we see in, in the second half of verse 20, we see what Paul then does and explains what happens with these two men, how they made a shipwreck of their faith. And he says, look, whom I have handed over to Satan. He's handed them over to Satan. So this follows what Paul gave in two different places in Scripture. One is 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, that there is a man in the church and he is, uh, he is, he is committing a, just a heinous sin and it's causing division in the church. And they say, you need to remove him from your church. You need to hand him over to Satan in order that even though his flesh might be destroyed, his soul might be saved in the midst of that. Or Matthew 18, 15 through 20, this is about church discipline where someone goes and approaches them in private. And if they don't respond to that, then you have two or more people go with that first person to respond. And then if they don't respond to that, you put them in front of the congregation. And if they still don't respond to that, then you remove them from the church in that. Because we must be willing to do this. Because there's people teaching a false teaching in the church. And this is causing division in the people. And it's causing people to fall away from the faith. We must confront it. We must be willing to excommunicate them. In other words, the next, next truth, we must remove them from the church. We must remove them from the church. We must be willing to remove them from the church so that it would lead ultimately to that person repenting of their false teachings and come back to Christ. Because again, removing someone from a church, it is not a permanent thing. It's meant to be a temporary thing. It's meant to be a temporary thing where they just go their way and ultimately they lead this out and hope, and it might lead to the shipwreck of their faith, come to the end of their rope, hit rock bottom, realize, wow, I've really made a mess of things. And I've realized the error of my ways, and I want to repent and turn back to Christ. And again, when we, re- if we have to get to this point where we remove people from the church and confront them in this way. We do not do this from a place of us being better than them. Of Yeah, we got it right, and they got it wrong. We don't do this from a place of arrogance, but a broken heart for this person. Again, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, our, here's our aim of our charge. It is love. That is our aim, is love. Because we love God, and we cherish the gospel above everything else. That we love the gospel dearly. We cherish it so dearly. And ultimately, that leads us to loving people dearly because they're precious people made in the image of God. They're precious people that Christ died for. We want to see them come to faith and knowledge in Christ and live for him. And then Paul explains, okay, I hand him over to Satan. Here's why I handed him over to Satan. The last part of verse 20, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So to blaspheme, it just means to make light of the name of God. So it, it's, what it means is it's, it's taking the Lord's name in vain. So you might people say OMG or other, other ways to say this. But also another way that people take the Lord's name in vain is if they claim to be a Christian. They proclaim to be a Christian yet never live out their lives as if they are a Christian. So we say we're a Christian, we're saying we're a little Christ, we're representing Christ. If we're not representing Christ well, then that is when we take the Lord's name in vain. So the goal of removing someone from church and entering into the world or the domain of Satan, handing them over to Satan is for them to learn the error of their ways. It's for them to bring them to repentance. I think a lot of times what we want to do is we want to hold so tightly onto someone, we want to stop someone from, from, from going down this path, but sometimes the most loving thing we can do, sometimes the only thing we can do, is we let go and we move aside and we let them go down that path. We let them go down that path. Again, that might lead to them coming to the end of the rope. That might lead to them hitting rock bottom. That might lead to them losing everything. But as we see in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, 
that even if it's the destruction of their body, if it saves their souls, if in the end, at least that person repenting of their sins, believing in Christ, being able to spend eternity with him, then that, if that's what needs to be done, then that's what needs to be done. Here's what we need to do. There's a couple of things we need to do if we're going to do this, if we remove them from the church. One, we must pray for repentance. We must pray for repentance. First Timothy uh, 2, 1 through 4, something we're going to study next week, is that God desires for everyone to be saved. God desires for everyone to be saved, and we're to pray for the salvation of everyone. So we don't stop caring about that person, even after we remove them. We don't stop praying for that person. We must remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.13 last week. That again, Paul acted ignorantly out of unbelief, yet he still received mercy. And so this person might be acting ignorantly out of unbelief, and so we need to remind them that Christ still extends mercy to them. We should pray the same thing in these lives of these people. We've got to remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17 about how Christ is perfectly patient with all of us. And so he's perfectly patient with those whom have shipwrecked their faith and extends mercy to them. He's perfectly patient with us as we strive to live out the gospel and defend the gospel and stand firm on the gospel. His grace overflows for the one who shipwrecked their faith, overflows to them, but also for us who are striving to stand strong in the faith, that his grace is overflowing in both those. We must pray for us that letting go of them and removing them from the church even if it leads to a shipwrecked faith, that they'll have a prodigal son moment. They'll have a prodigal son story where they realize what they've done and come back. If you don't know what the prodigal son story is, it's in Luke 15. It's where this younger brother said, I want to take all my inheritance and I want to go and live my life how I want to. And he goes and does that. And then he realizes he hits rock bottom. He's literally eating just, just pig slop. He spent all his money. He's hit rock bottom. He's realized the Arab is way. He's like, I need to, I need to go home. And as he turns, he starts coming back home and his father sees him from a distance and his father starts sprinting and welcomes him home and says, I want you to slay just the best cow we got. We're going to have a feast. We're going to celebrate because my son was once lost, but now he is found. So here's what we need to do. We pray that they come home, pray for repentance. And this last one, we must celebrate their return. We must celebrate their return. Because again, in Luke 15, it says there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. There is joy before the angels of God when one sinner repents. When one sinner repents and turns back to God, there is a party that goes on in heaven because they were once lost and now they're found. They were once on their way to hell and now they're on their way to heaven. That they are saved. We must celebrate because the gospel is that powerful and that amazing. The gospel can save anybody, no matter how far they've gone, no matter how wild their beliefs may be, God can absolutely save them. Because again, remember, Paul says that they learn not to blaspheme. Who is someone that we've known that's been a blasphemer? Is Paul, is the author of this book. He even says in verse 13, he goes, I used to be a blasphemer, yet Christ extended mercy to me and saved me out of my unbelief and displayed his perfect patience through me. We must celebrate the perfect patience of Christ working in and through this person if they come home. This is why we wage warfare. For the sake of the gospel, because it is too precious for people to distort. It is too pure for people to taint. And the stakes are too high for us to shirk away from this. Again, lives are at stake. Eternity is at stake. That we must wage the good warfare. So let me ask you this. Are you fighting the good fight? Are you fighting the good fight? 
Are you waging good warfare for the sake of the gospel? Are you standing strong on the faith of the gospel? Here's two questions to help us more. Are you standing strong in the faith? Are you standing strong in this faith that, that, that you say that you believe in, that we say we believe in? And then if you're standing strong in that, then what are some false teachings or false teachers that maybe you personally need to let go of? That if we are to fight the good fight, if we're to wage good warfare, we must stand strong in the faith and we must be willing to let people go so we can continue to proclaim the gospel and see more and more people become saved by this amazing gospel. Here, let's pray. So Lord, we we thank you so much. We just thank you for the gospel and how just amazing it is. We thank you how it can just save even the most wretched of sinner. It can bring anyone back no matter how far gone they may be. But also it's helpful for us too, that us as we continue to try to strive and grow in our faith, that there's mercies that are new every day. Even at times that we fall, even at times that we fail, uh, to be able to stand strong, that you continue to overflow your grace to us to help us in that. To grow more in our faith, to humble us more and stand strong in the faith, and then to go and combat false teachings and push back darkness and to be able to proclaim the gospel in our schools and everywhere else you've called us to. So I pray to our Lord, would you help each and every one of us in this room to stand strong in the faith, to cling to the gospel, to love the gospel, to preach it to ourselves daily, and that we are willing, as you've commanded us, that we go up and we combat false teachings and that we push back that, that are leading people astray, but we do it from a humble posture, that we do it out of heart overflowing with love, Because even while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. And that is the ultimate form of love. And we love these people as you have loved these people. So would you help us as only you can, Lord. And we give you all the praise and the glory in advance for everything that you're going to do. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.